Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Kathy Davidson. And Kathy, it's such a delight to see you. I've known you for a long time. We were just chatting offline, as it were, or before recording and realizing that the last time we met was probably when we bumped into one another in the lobby or outside a hotel in L.A. Yes, under a Barbara Kruger sign. It was a long, it was maybe 15 years, 10 years ago, a while ago. A while ago. And uh, at one moment in the 90s, we were all under the sign of Barbara Kruger one night. (laughs) It's not a bad place to be. We need those warnings in our lives. (laughs) Couldn't agree more. So, so, Kathy, my first question for you is the one I always ask, really, which is what is dynamizing you, interesting you, troubling you, preoccupying you right now? So that's a great question. After quite a long career writing books in many different fields, I seem incapable of writing the same book twice. <laughs> um, at this point in my career, I've become very, very passionately interested in the future of higher education. Yes. And it's from several different points of view. One, um, we inherited a system of education from the 19th century that was clearly overtly designed for the industrial age. And there are many features of that that don't fit comfortably in the modern age. And we've been very slow post the Internet um, to revamp and rechange higher education in a way that's relevant for the students today, for their future, not for our past. So that's one. On the other hand, higher education is being attacked from every possible angle right now, from financial to political. And that concerns me. And then a third one is we're not so good at protecting ourselves. It's shocking Hmm. to me that we're very good at organizing political interventions on some things, but often not on our own well-being. And I think this is pretty much true worldwide. But since I only know firsthand the United States case, shocking to me that we can have books being banned in Florida. The whole field of sociology banned as a general education requirement in Florida. Diversity, equity, and inclusion being banned in many states across the United States. Um, Funding being cut precipitously. Falsehoods, absolute falsehoods about the value of a higher education degree. Uh, being spread against higher education and our professional organizations, our universities are not banding together in one voice and saying, this is, this is wrong. Why are people, why are people working so hard to rob the next generation of their future? Why are we doing so much to undermine the one thing that gives uh, in a talk recently, someone said, for working class immigrant first generation students that I teach as a woman from the audience, I want them to know that higher education doesn't just prepare them for a job that will feed their children, but give them the possibility of a career that can feed their souls. And that distinction to me feels mm-hmm. so crucial. And we're giving it up. We're not fighting. I don't understand why we're not fighting. So that's that's the thing that keeps me awake at night. And it's a, a turn from much of my previous Uh, what's a turn I've been taking for the last 15 or 20 years. Yes, Um, because you um, were a sort of literature prof, Americanist, uh, and so on, and a very distinguished one uh, as uh, an essayist, as an author of books, as an editor. And this other turn is very important too. And I think when when you speak that way, it makes me think of the fact that 
a recently retired dean at Penn was on the podcast with me, Michael mm. Deligarpini, and Michael was explaining that when the assault on higher education was underway, he said those of us in the Ivies and their ilk, in a private way, were relieved that we were safe from that. But they've discovered that they're not right. at all, that they're in the crosshairs of this assault. And I guess the other thing that occurs to me is this, that, Kathy, a couple of my interlocutors on the podcast from particular states of the union asked me off air not to ask them anything political and not to ask them about where they live other than in terms of the landscape, which is an important topic, but not the only one. And this is not the United States that I came to live in and cherished in many ways whilst being very critical of and worked in for decades. So I am very concerned about it too. But it seems to me there's a paradox, if not a contradiction, between the two things you identified to start off with. Right. Right? One is this system's not built, not fit for purpose. It's got to change, which is what all these bastards on the right are saying. And yes. the other, we've got to defend ourselves. And I know, and it's a hard, a complex line there, right? Yes, it's sometimes I sometimes feel like there's a little pin, and I'm trying to tap dance on the head of it. But in fact, it's crucial. It's crucial. And those things are related in complicated in complicated ways. So, yes, it is true that the Ivies are also under assault now. At the same time, um, we have to do something about the cost of higher education. And it's not just the Ivies that are costing $65,000 a year. At, at Even many public schools, because of the defunding of higher education, are running, are coming into that into that that kind of range and debt and student debt is a real real problem for every student um you know except for the very the one percent that is a real issue at the same time if you look at the cost of private prep schools or even preschools literally preschools for four-year-olds they're also exorbitantly expensive so all of higher education has gone through this tremendous inflation in cost that seems to be a whole part of the international right-wing oligarchic movement to get rid to reverse the 19th century championing of a rise of the middle. To quote E.P. Thompson, whose birth date was just, I think, this week. Centenary. Um, yeah, he's been alive. Yeah. So, yeah, the rise of the middle class in the 19th century is a thing. And clearly we're going to, through a world in political and economic history where reversing that rise is part of the process and the single most effective way of reversing that rise is minimizing education. So, for example, the state of Massachusetts just in the last month or so proposed, and I I don't have the latest here, so I don't know if it's actually been put into effect, but proposed that applicants to jobs didn't need to have college degrees anymore. They could have skills certification. Well, it's presented with an egalitarian language, but who, in fact, is helped by getting a job at age 18 or 19 based on skills certification when it means that you're suddenly then limited in what those skills actually portend for a future? Is that really helping the student or is it allowing the state to keep you in a relatively low um, paying job for an indeterminate amount of time without many options? 
Um, and those kinds of larger economic questions keep me up, up, up at night. However, the reason I made this rather dramatic move, my previous two jobs had been at Princeton and at Duke for many, many years. And then I came to CUNY partly because, and now I'm saying this as a Chicagoan. So that has to be put into context because Chicagoans don't always like to praise New York. There is nothing in the whole of the United States or even worldwide, very rare, uh, comparable to the CUNY system with, you know, 250,000 full-time, 250,000 part-time students. And our tuition is $6,000 a year. That's crazy and uh, astonishing and kind of miraculous. And I really wanted to see how how can this outlier system work? I mean, on, on rankings of social mobility, CUNY's campuses are the top nine or 10 CUNY campuses in the country for taking students from the lowest economic portal and bringing them to not always the highest, but a totally middle-class It's a miracle. If I could cut in for a moment, Prof. So CUNY is the City University of New York. It has campuses in all the boroughs. It is supported by both city government funds and state government funds. And it has moved from being a a route for social mobility for the white working class and white immigrants to being a the most extraordinary experiment in cultural mixing. And the other thing, just quickly to say, if I could, with reference to Princeton and Duke, because the plurality of listeners are in the US, but the majority not, uh, Princeton is one of the original Ivy League colleges in the Northeast. Duke is one of what are sometimes called the new Ivies, uh, which are uh, heavily endowed private universities. Uh, the University of Spoiled Children is another, to use its technical name, although trading is the University of Southern California, uh, and uh, NYU is another. But these are really terrific and in many ways progressive institutions. Yeah, no uh, question. Actually. Um but they are part of the inflationary spiral, right? So the fact that that Professor Davidson made a shift from being in a very senior managerial position at Duke uh, to, you know, a very eminent position in CUNY, but nevertheless a shift from the private elite to the, you can't really call CUNY the elite, but public high-quality higher education, let's put it that way, right? Not elite because... You don't have ruling class people studying there by and large. That's also a remark about your choices as a person. So could you tell us, sorry for my long-winded way of asking the question. No, that was so helpful. I, I learned. That was great and no, very helpful to an international you, audience. I appreciate that. Could you tell us a little bit, if you don't mind, about your own personal choice to make that transition? Because I think that's an unusual transition. It is. A, it turns out it's a very unusual transition. <laughs> and I have to admit, I'm very privileged within the system. I'm, you know, I'm I, uh, I I'm, I'm I don't have the same. Um, I mean, I, I, I feel very, very lucky. I'm very privileged within a, a, a egalitarian system. I work very harder than I've ever worked in my life. And it's a huge honor to be able to work this hard. Yes. yes. Um, well, they're lucky to have you. I, I feel lucky every day. My, I'm the biggest CUNY um, supporter because it's really shocking how dedicated people are on every level. 
And yeah. uh, and that students as well, our typical students is not only working full time, but often working two and three terrible minimum wage part time jobs in order yeah. to support themselves in school. And they yeah. fight so hard for their education. In my own life, um, I've always been interested in uh, working class and oppositional histories. So I was very, very lucky early in my career um to be writing a book about those voices that dissented from the Constitution at the time of the Constitution. And uh, I was actually living in England for a year and got to work with all the great Marxists in England at the time, um, was picked up and befriended by um, Christopher Hills, Stuart Stahl, uh, Raymond Williams. Um, one of the big honors and fears of my life was Raymond Williams' assistant wrote to me and said, I want you to know that when Raymond died, Professor Williams died, your book Revolution in the Word was on his desk. I thought, oh my God, I hope I didn't kill Raymond Williams. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, but his influence has certainly been very, very deep in my life. And when I was writing about mass printing and mass education and mass uh, literacy and opposition to the uh, constitution was I was very interested in who the constitution left out and left out pretty much everybody it wasn't a white elite landowning debt-free uh, man right I mean that's really who the constitution was written for and these novels and broadsides were t- on terrible paper by people some of whom were barely literate but were written for the other voices at the time so it's really been a passion of mine when the internet came along in basically April 22nd, 1993, when the when the Mosaic 1.0 browser was given to the public as a free entity that allowed anyone to speak to anybody else in the world without an editor, without a degree, without um, uh, without anyone sifting through the information, I thought, wow, the issues and the fears people have about the Internet are kind of the same ones people had about the invention of the novel and mass printing at the time of the revolution. And I can use ask those same questions for the contemporary age. So that's that was part of the intellectual movement. Mm. The personal movement is just. I was a bad girl in high school. I was kicked out of high school four times. A number of lovely people saved me, including my immigrant grandmother, who literally called around Chicago schools and said, I've got this really smart granddaughter who's gotten herself in a bit of trouble and a very nice liberal arts college called Elmhurst College outside of Chicago uh, offered me a scholarship kind of willy-nilly at the last possible moment. Classes had begun. And it had all these amazing adjunct professors. Gwendolyn Brooks, the famous poet Gwendolyn Brooks, taught me poetry. She taught there as an adjunct. Um, and many of the Harry Who, the radical Chicago artists, were adjunct professors there. So I have a passionate interest in in working for students who don't have the normal, perfect profile um, that often comes with being an upper middle class uh, person. And I feel very, very lucky that CUNY wanted me to come here and bring whatever I do to the world here. And uh, it's been a wonderful match. Kathy, have you stopped being a bad girl? And if so... No! I don't think you can stop. Do you, Toby? Do you think you can stop? <laughs> well, listen, I first became aware of your work before we met about 25 years ago, a bit more, when I read a piece you wrote on, on the reading revolution, ah. which was a new concept to me. And it made me think a lot about 
when new literacies emerge and when the right to literacy of different kinds applies and what that can lead to, I found it really helpful. I was lucky enough when I was in college that Christopher Hill came and taught a seminar. So I had that experience. But here's my, you know, not about your biography, but related to the anecdote you just told us. Williams and Thompson both died in 1988. Williams, I think, about 10 days ago in 1988, as it were. Williams died a couple of days after Thompson's birthday. And one of the things I've been thinking about a lot since thinking about Thompson's centenary is what would it have been like if they'd lived through the post-Cold War period instead of dying in a sense, at the towards the end of Reaganism, towards the end of Thatcherism, but nevertheless at a high point of that Cold War, what would those dudes have had to share with us about the period since? Because, you know, we, Thompson, I think, left the Communist Party after right. Hungary, I think. And Williams, I don't even know if he was in the party, but if he was, he would, I think he left earlier. But they were the founders, along with Stuart Hall um, and various others, founders of the the new left in Britain, which had its corollary in the U.S. But in the U.S., it wasn't so much academics. It was students, I think, more. Um, But Juliet Mitchell was one of the founders of Britain, for example. uh, and, And so it goes. And Charles Taylor, another. Yes, right. So, and Taylor's still going, and Mitchell's still going, as far as we know, I'm pleased to say. What's your thought? It's a sort of thought experiment. If we were able to convene a meeting with Thompson, Williams, Hall, Mitchell, Taylor, (laughs) you can share it, since you were a (laughs) provost, and you know how to... Get people to I'd like to be in that seminar. That's for sure. <laughs> I'd love to be in that seminar. Um, I, one quick thing I want to mention is when I was so influenced by those powerful, powerful British voices, nobody in the United States was applying those kinds of voices to Puritan and post-Puritan and revolutionary things. So one reason I left that field is I was such an oddball. Revolution in the word, world, I didn't know it at the time because I was so passionately interested in those British Marxist thinkers and early cultural studies thinkers. But it was such an, uh, there was just nothing like it. And there still isn't with crazily, crazily, it hasn't been, it's still taught very frequently. And I still get, you know, royalty checks from Oxford University Press, Oxford, ironically, right? I mean, still in the Stuart, in the, in the vein of Thompson and, and, and Mitchell. I think if they were still alive now, One, I think they'd be amazed at how, maybe not, maybe not amazed. Maybe they would be saddened to see how quickly leaders of higher education have in many ways absorbed and capitulated to a neoliberal uh, buying and selling of the university in a way that's often pretends to be for the benefit of students, but it's absolutely not from the benefit of the students. I mean, you know, the so many of the things that are said to be about, well, we're going to invest in things that pay well, are not at all about the um, 
actual welfare of the students, nor of the faculty. They're of, um, you know, I have great admiration for so many colleagues at NYU. I mean, I hate to say, you know, some of my best friends teach at NYU, but some of my best friends do teach at NYU. But many people call it a real estate corporation with a small college attached. And I've heard the same thing about the Harvard Foundation. Uh, the Harvard Foundation were a country, it would be the 18th wealthiest com- com- country on the, com- on, the, on the planet. There's something really odd and wrong about higher education being so much part of the neoliberal um, economic grab. I mean, I believe economically now that we're basically back to the Gilded Age uh, in terms of the uh, uh, ownership of property, um, uh, inheritable wealth, uh, and on and on. And I it makes me very sad. And again, this is one reason I feel so lucky to be at CUNY because it is an outlier in this way, uh, in this regard. But so much of higher education, oh. either by acqu- acquisition to the status of its own alumni and its leadership, or by attrition because of defunding, terrible defunding of higher education, um, is part of that neoliberalism, is a component. If we're talking about all a uh, lack of um, uh, antitrust laws worldwide, um, uh, consolidation of property into fewer and fewer hands, uh, consolidation of wealth into fewer and fewer hands. Hi- what's happened in higher education is one prong that we have to say, because it's about the education of values that are educating into a kind of set of neoliberal values. And that to me seems tragic. And I think... Thompson and Williams and Juliet Mitchell and and Charles Taylor would be um, sad and furious, and Stuart Hall would be both sad and uh, sad and furious at that. And but I think they would have some insights um, as well for us. No, beautifully put. Hate it that our professional organizations aren't more radical about these deep, deep issues that are important, even though higher education also needs to change. So, um, you know, when I was at NYU. Which I enjoyed very much, but I signed on not even knowing that it was a private school. I didn't know anything about U.S. higher education. But what I should have known was that its slogan at that time, at any rate, was a private university in the public interest. But I remember I met Stanley Aronowitz, the late Stanley Aronowitz, of course, for many years at City University of New York. And Stanley saying to me, no, it's a public university in the private interest, in that it gets all this public money, which it uses in the interest of its trustees. And you could say the same about Hopkins, Johns Hopkins, which has maybe the most distinguished medical research history in the United States, is a private school, very wealthy in a city of unbelievable, indescribable poverty. It gets gigantic amounts of money from the National Institutes of Health, the National Institute of Mental Health, et cetera. So I do think there's a very important point to be be made there. And you, you make it very movingly. So I guess getting back, we'll return, I think, to the right-wing critiques. Hmm. But getting back to your critique, in a sense, from the left, what can be done to stop the tendency that Duke was part of, but before you were a provost, of doing things like, oh, how do we get wealthier students? We'll offer more gyms. We'll offer faster internet. We'll offer you know, in those days, cable TV in every dorm room, you know, all this additional offering to attract wealthier kids from wealthier families Mm -hmm. that 
all those schools did. And at the same time, the Duke model that NYU followed, which was how can we buy our way into greater esteem? We'll get star professors and then we'll attract doctoral applicants with better grade point averages. Right. I mean, I'm putting this crudely, but... No, that- I, I actually think about that keeps me awake at night. I and mean, I think it's true because on the one hand, the astonishing medical things that have come out of Hopkins or Duke or uh, NYU, the intellectual work that comes every day out of these institutions is incredible. It's yes. astonishing. And I don't want to think of it as being simply fluff or the lure to make these huge economic entities that are universities more profitable, because I think it is something valid and worth and worth supporting. So there's that on one side and there's the enormous inequality that's, that is, that also comes out of such um, uh, structures at the same time. And I don't have an answer and I don't have a, I, I mean, I, how do I say this without sounding ridiculous, but I'm going to now sound ridiculous. I, I have no use in being pessimistic and being cynical because I really do believe, and this is very bell hooksian, that you and it's very Stuart Hallian too, that you need and it's Gramscian, right? You need the the optimism of the of the will uh and the pessimism of the intellect to happen side by side. And I really am an activist in my soul, and so my optimism is what helps fuel that. But there's so many things, even within those structures that, in fact, I think may contribute to more to neoliberal society that also can be fulfilling and nourishing for all students, whether they're from the most disadvantaged background or the most elite background. And um, I think all of that's important. One of them, one of the most basic ones is it seems tragic to me that we've made general education be this sort of also ran of higher education. Students think and university regards them as being surplus rather than foundational and things you can kind of get rid of. So students take them like, what sociology class do I have? Do I, can I fit into my schedule at eight o'clock on a Wednesday morning in order to get rid of that stupid requirement that I can concentrate on my major? But everything we know about, in fact, opening your mind, opening your soul, understanding the world is a different place comes from those very foundational general courses. And we also know, and this is my new job, from thousands, literally thousands of studies of employers conducted by the National Association of Colleges and Employers and by the Deloitte Foundation and even by Forbes magazine, that the things education um, uh, employers most look for in new college graduates are exactly those things that you get from general education, understanding of the world, written and communication skills, um, being able to collaborate and work with people from totally different backgrounds than your own, um, project management, time management. These are like basic things students learn in higher education that are, in fact, the practical things employers want. So this kind of neoliberal vocationalism that says we have to cut the philosophy department, we have to cut the humanities, we have to cut the arts and only focus on things that prepare students for occupations don't prepare students for occupations. So so that feels to me like a non-cynical, simple fix. It's not simple in a big level because it means academics also have to think about and communicate why we teach what we teach. Um, I don't know if you know that. I'm sure you do know the syllabus project that used to be Columbia. Now it's independently operated, collected hundreds of thousands of syllabuses, syllabi from around the world. 
you can read tens of thousands of syllabi without ever getting to a why question. People are good at saying what the requirements are. They read like syllabi reads like terms of service agreements, right? Risk (laughs) management, right? And we know terms of service agreements are written to not be read. So nobody reads a syllabus and faculty complain about it. But rarely does a syllabus say you're studying philosophy because you're going to learn these things that are going to, we know you're not going to be a philosophy professor like me, but I know that learning these different ways of thinking will help you throughout the rest of your life, in your family, in your community, and in your jobs. Sorry. We don't, and, and we don't explain also, that. Also the case, Kathy, that the ruling class in the United States understands that. Oh, yes. Well. So it sends its children to Lewis and Clark or, you know, name your little liberal arts college in the Pacific Northwest or the Midwest or the Northeast or to some of the schools we're talking about precisely because their children are going to read Plato. Exactly. They're going to read Simone de Beauvoir. And then later on, they'll go and do a grad degree or a professional degree or whatever. But the ruling class understands that these people need to know foundational social questions and how to think about things. And they also know you need a college education because it's the future of networking. Networking in the old-fashioned sense, social reproduction, contacts, and none of this on-the-job training bollocks works like that does it just right. doesn't right and and also it's curriculum because it's driven by the moment and nothing else right. is quickly overhauled and irrelevant so i guess I, I wanted to throw those things out to you and at the same time ask you to talk about a transition another transition in your work which is from writing books for you know oxford university press or cambridge or, or whoever to writing I should, maybe I can't say best-selling, but a trade book trilogy mm. yes. about higher yes. education. Could you talk to us a bit about that kind of transition, why you did it, what it involved, and what were the pluses and the minuses? Well, you asked about being a bad girl. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, 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 you know, I don't... I. Uh, when young scholars ask me about this, I'm always very cautious because I somehow got away with it. But it's not always the case that you can write a book that is not for a specialized audience and not in the language, the citation, talk about networking, right? Citations are not just about giving credit to other people, but saying, this is my network. These are my people. These yeah. are who I support and who support me. This is my peer network. These are my peer reviewers. I I I I wanted to write books that would reach a much larger public Mm. and uh, including a larger public within the academy because people rarely read across each other's fields. And I wanted to be be a translator. So the book I wrote, the first book in the How We Know trilogy is Now You See It, which is on the science of attention. When I was an administrator, I got to be the faculty, the administrator involved in creating our first neuroscience program, cognitive neuroscience program, but also a number of animal neuroscience programs. And that was incredibly wonderful for me. I'm also dyslexic. So it was very informative for me to learn a little bit more about how my brain worked. And I have a brother late. He's now passed away um, who has suffered from brain damage for the, he had a brain tumor for the last 30 years of his life. And I, so I was learning neuroscience in this incredibly institutional way, hiring the best people possible to start this new program 
in this personal way, self-knowledge, and in this way that would was literally to help my sister-in-law and my nephew help my brother to survive in some way as he was losing more and more of his capacities. And I realized the passion that I brought to my own learning of a field is rarely available to a larger audience. So I wanted to somehow be able to translate the way I was learning because I was reading the most um, detailed books and art, not books, but articles in neuroscience and then trying to translate them in a way I understand and had the advantage of being able to interview people for these jobs in this new program and saying, how would you explain it to me? I mean, I actually have a background in science. I was a math geek growing up, but I'm not a neuroscientist. How would you explain your ideas to me? And I was so moved and grateful and inspired by their explanations that I felt like that's something I wanted to do as well. Um, I also wrote a book about living in Japan that was intended to bring specialized knowledge to a non-specialized audience. And when I wrote that book, people came to me in North Carolina and said, we want to write a book. We would like you to use the techniques used in your memoir about living in Japan for the closing of the oldest furniture factory in the South and explaining to our readers about post the post-industrial South and the world they're living in. So that's a book called Closing the Life and Death of an American Factory that I wrote with a brilliant documentary photographer who actually photographed. It's, we think the only time a photographer has been allowed to physically be there during the closing of a plant. So the, the worker meetings, the dismantling, and then we he did something so beautiful. He asked each worker how they wanted to be posed in the book. And almost everybody said they wanted to be posed with the machine that they had been working on their whole lives. Um, oh, and I got to, it was incredible. And I got to interview people and turn it into a book that made post-industrialism <laughs> not E.P. Thompson level, but a level that people could understand. We also were able to work with the North Carolina Museum of Art and put on a beautiful event for the workers. We hired buses that brought people from this rural North Carolina town to this museum for an event that was a show of the photograph photographs, but they also had no, not a single person had ever been in the North Carolina Museum of Art. And as they took their bus up the path to the North Carolina Museum of Art, there were banners with all of their photographs on um, the roadway into the museum commemorating the factory that no longer existed. You can't have an experience like that and not be inspired to try to replicate some part of that for a larger audience. So that's been my, but it comes with risks. Uh, you know, it's uh, um, changing fields comes with risks. Not writing for your peers comes with risks. And I must, I, I feel stupid saying about risks because I've had a very lucky, very lucky career, but I know that that's not something I can advocate for everybody. It's, um, because it does come, it it does come with risks, and it does, and you do get accused of dumbing down, uh, you know, of it, all of that, all of that, and it's those are valid criticisms. In some sense, it is not as specialized and as detailed as I'd be writing for peers. Um, so there, so there's there are affective choices that do go back, I think, to being a bad girl, um, and. Uh, yeah, I, I appreciate your frankness. I, I must admit, I haven't read your book about Japan, but your uh, sorry, I have read your book about Japan. I haven't read your book about the deindustrialization of the oh, South. I'll send it to you. It's very beautiful. Uh, but um, your your story almost brings tears to my eyes. Uh, I didn't know about your brother, and I didn't know you ex you experienced dyslexia, mm. and 
it's a remarkable choice to become a literature professor. Did you know that you were quote unquote dyslexic? I I write about that in um, now you see it. I was a I, I got my PhD in an insanely early age. Uh, my my dissertation director made me go back and get a master's degree just so it didn't look so goofy on my transcript um, <laughs> that I was like 23 and a half when I turned in my dissertation. And it's because I hated graduate school and I hated under I really hate public. I hate I'm not a traditional student, didn't like it, but I learned in a very quirky way. But um, when I got my first teach, I was unemployed for three years. I got my first job at Michigan State. And my mentor, the only other woman in a department of 75 people, said to me, I'm bringing my six-year-old to talk to the psychologist about this new thing called learning disabilities. Why don't you come along? And I was crazy about her daughter. I'm kind of the de facto uh-huh. goddaughter of her daughter. And I said, sure. And, of course, Linda knew that I had learning disabilities. I didn't know that. And she recognized it in her daughter. So her daughter took these tests. And I asked the psychologist, I said, wow, these are interesting. Can I take them too? And I always joke that it's the only test in my entire academic career that I got a perfect score on. I mean, I was off the charts dyslexic, crazy off the charts dyslexic. And it didn't even have a name when I was in school. I was just a bad girl. I was obstinate. I was a bad girl. I was punished. And yet I had teachers who my whole life, and maybe this is why I'm an educator, my whole life who said, wow, you may be failing this math test, but you just kind of did this thing that's calculus and you don't even know what calculus is. Uh, you know, so I got a, I won a big award to math camp as a kid and did this problem that didn't look like anybody else's problem. And my teacher at the time, who was a Yale doctoral student, um, said, you realize you've just invented calculus. And I said, I have no idea. And it was because I'd solved a problem trying to figure out how you calculate um, velocity and speed on on a curved surface, and and I just was spent the summer trying to figure that out. And didn't realize there was a whole field called calculus that's about those kinds of kinds of concepts. So I had a very quirky understanding of the word. It wasn't called dyslexia until I was twenty five or twenty six years old, uh, and went with my. There is this thing that is called diagnostic relief. It was an enormous gift that my friend Linda Wagner Martin, my still my mentor, she's 88 and still writes two books a year. Um, Linda Wagner Martin gave me by bringing me to that to that meeting because it was like I wasn't just obstinate. I just it's just I see the world and I do the world in a different way than most people do. And it has some real pluses and some real minuses. I've always been an administrator of some kind, often unpaid, so I can have an assistant because I simply can't do a calendar. If I see words and numbers together, I will mess them up. I think I'm doing the right thing and I will mess them up, which is why I failed every math class and tutored students in algebra in order to keep them out of the draft during the Vietnam War. I mean, if you didn't have a high school degree, you were drafted immediately and algebra was a sticking point. And some lovely math professor who was giving me a D in my math class said, I need to teach algebra to these students because you'll be able to get them You'll be able to understand them and teach these. They were all called greasers. They were working class kids. You'll be able to get them high school degrees so they don't become cannon fodder um, in Vietnam. So that's what I did as a freshman in high school is I, I tutored students in algebra as I was getting D's in algebra. So it's a very quirky. Uh, and you, when I was on the board of Mozilla, I would start this story and everybody on the board. And these are the inventors of the modern Internet, um, you know, who created the Mosaic 1.0 browser. Uh, Mozilla was 
the mosaic killer that was the moving away from mosaic the original founders almost all of them had this same kind of story it's not unusual for a math person not to be able to add uh, einstein couldn't add i mean not that i'm an einstein by any means but but you know it's not an unusual thing but it was very late in life relatively um that i've figured out that i was dyslexic and i'm grateful ever since for that label that's very inspiring actually so Related, I guess, to the the trilogy, you're an advisor on transformation to the Chancellor. And by Chancellor, we mean the person with an entire bureaucratic staff around him or her who is responsible for all those over 20 CUNY campuses. So you have a purview that is off to one side from line management I guess, if you're an advisor, but with a, an entree to somebody who has responsibility for the entire system. And transformation is very much what I think your trade books mm. are about. Right. And I say trade books in an admiring way, of course, not a critical mm. Thank you. So, um, and I think about our, you know, our mutual friend, Andrew Ross, who writes trade books uh, Incredible. Yes. Example. So what's the sort of transformation within a situation like CUNY's that you want to see or can see? So needless to say, so when the chancellor asked me if I would be his, the senior advisor in this role, I already have a very big job running a center at the Graduate Center that actually also extends throughout CUNY. And I thought, I, how can I how can I take on another job? And one of my friends said, since when does the chancellor read academic books and actually want to act on them? Since when? And I thought, yeah, absolutely. And I must say, I have huge admiration for somebody with this dreadful job of being a chancellor in this environment. It's a, it's a, I mean, there's no day that he doesn't have somebody attacking him for something and then somebody attacking him from the opposite point of view. But what I think I bring to this job is we tackle problems that seem to be intransigent and then really use our team to go in and help faculty, sometimes students, but almost always faculty, solve the problem and, and actually make it happen and figure out how to clear pathways so things can happen. Um, what I particularly bring is, so what other people bring is expertise in how you make things happen in this incredibly bureaucratic system with layers upon layers upon layers of oversight. We're paying the tax, we're using the taxpayers' money. There have to be, there has to be oversight. That's the uncynical way of saying it. There have to be rules, but there are rules on top of rules on top of rules. And some of those rules are part of neoliberalism and were actually passed to make change hard. So we have a SWAT team that's able to weave their way in and find ways to solve intractable problems. What I try to add is particularly from a faculty perspective, what's doable, what is a desecration of everything we believe and admire, um, what language works, but not just the language, what deep values and mission behind that language work. And I think that's pretty unusual to have people because I am not a full-time administrator in, in that sense now. I'm not paid as an administrator. I don't have an executive job title. 
Um, and yet I talked to the chancellor directly. Um, I actually have a cadre of about six university presidents around the U.S. that I form. I have, I'm just a sounding board. They just tell me stuff. And I, and my job is to talk as frankly as I'm talking to you. And they can either take that advice or not. And that's what I do with the chancellor too. He doesn't want me to be. So that's the bad girl again, because he counts on me Mm -hmm. to tell him what I think. That doesn't mean, and he's in any way bound to that, but he knows I will be honest. I mean, my, my co-director of the Futures Initiative, Shelley Eversley, who's writing an amazing book on Black writers and artists under McCarthyism. Talk about a book we need right now. Um, she calls me Kathy fucking Davidson. Am I allowed to say that on a podcast? I don't know. I may, may have to bleep me. But um, he wants me to be Kathy effing Davidson. And then he takes that as... And under advisement, as he's also hearing all of the other things he's doing. Yes. My big passion now is this thing called, around too much of the United States, called student success. Uh, I and my colleague at the University of California, Santa Cruz, Jody Green, are working together. And we talk we talk together every Thursday. And we call it academic success. Because if it's not faculty success, it's not student success. And if it's not student success, it's not faculty success. Getting faculty to appreciate that. It's harder at some institutions than at others. Uh, we sent a survey around to our faculty saying, uh, asking basic questions about, do you think student success beyond the university is part of your responsibility? First of all, I thought I was being optimistic. I said, we'll be so lucky if we get 200 responses. We got 1,600 responses. I couldn't believe that. 94% of the people who responded, now this is CUNY. And again, I'm a booster for CUNY because I am amazed at this place. of the people said, yeah, it is our responsibility. And about 85% of the people who said yes said, but we don't know how, we don't know how to get there. So my dedication for the last two years has been helping with very simple, concrete ways that faculty can take what they're teaching right now and help it be a bridge to students for their careers. Again, working class students, first generation students, uh, 70% below the poverty line. Um, who don't come from middle class families? What happens if you're teaching? This is my my wonderful colleague Cheryl Withanachi, who's a economist who teaches at Queens College, who takes her syllabus and has students fill and takes the National Association of College of uh, uh, Employer uh, Colleges and Employers eight things top things that employers say they want in a new employee. She has her students. Look at their syllabus and think about, oh, I'm doing group work. I hate group work. But wow, that's number two on the employer's list of a skill to learn. When I'm doing this group work project, I'm learning something I can use in my job because there will be a question. What collaborative projects have you done? Did they work or didn't they work? If I hate my group, that can be fashioned into something. I can tell an employer, yeah, I had a collaboration that really failed, but I learned from that failure. I learned you can't just have the smartest person in the group doing all, or the biggest talker in the group doing all the work. If, even if you think you're lucky being the person who's not doing anything and someone else is doing the work, you're losing. And that's, a, you can make that be a job skill. In an, she teaches Bayesian economics. Students don't know what Bayesian economics have to do with the rest of their, their career, but she, she lets them think through that. So we teach faculty how to do that, whether it's a calculus class, done this now, that with thousands of faculty and students. And we haven't yet come up with a field where you can't use that chart and have students do it. And suddenly a light bulb goes off and they say, wow, this helps me. 
These aren't things when you ask students, and there's much research on this. When you ask students, what your what your professors want from you? They want good grades. They want you to learn what's on the test and master what's on the test so that you get a good grade. To get faculty and students realize, no, 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 we want something far deeper and more profound, but we don't say it. We do not say it. Um, that's a that's already it's a culture change. It's a mission change. It's a conceptual change. So it's both easy and it's the hardest thing we do as humans, right, is to go through a, a change in our identity. Um, is our identity that I gave a great paper at MLA and um, people in my field were there? Or is my identity that I teach the same ideas that were on that panel at MLA, but I help my students to see how those ideas are about critical thinking? And that's number four on the list of things that employers want. That's a big conceptual change and it's a crucial one, but it requires faculty and students going through it. And I believe together, because I'm a big bell hooks, progressive, Pierre, you know, Paulo, Paulo Freire, progressive learning person. I don't think you tell students that. They work on it for themselves. They work on it. Uh, they learn it for themselves and believe it and incorporate it into their lives. And uh, just for outsiders, as it were, the MLA is the Modern Language Association, which is the big US-based annual conference and also set of other conferences and big journal proceedings of the MLA, PMLA, that is on, I guess it's no longer between Christmas and New Year. It's after that, isn't it now? It is. It's now the first week in January. Right. But it's where, uh, in a sense, people can uh, concerned with the study of language and literature in the U.S., but plenty of people from outside the U.S. come and it is a place where the New York Times, I don't know if it still does this, but used to send a reporter each year to make fun of literature yes. radicals. Yes, and it was, was as, it? As, yeah, it was like the the perennial and New York Times gags. What is what is the stupidest thing we can find? Right. Ah, so I'm talking about a button and the button in the 17th century. Woo. Yeah, or, yeah. you know, was Jane Austen queer? Uh, they would get obsessed yes. with Yes. what they saw as ludicrous tendencies in right. interpretation. Right. Um, very unfortunate, but it, illuminating when it comes to what <laughs> the bourgeois media in the United States and elsewhere are about. So, Prof. Kathy, we've, I'd like to ask you one more question and then throw things to you to give you the chance to subtract from or add to what we've discussed. So my question to you is this. I'm... Somehow or other, I've managed to get through to you. I've got to your door. I've knocked on it. You've granted me an audience. I've got a cocktail or some candy or a cup of tea to warm you to me. <laughs> and I say, I'm a doctoral student in blah. Let's forget for the moment what blah is. And I want to become an academic here in the U.S. How do I do it? Mm. So I've been saying this for 20 years, but I say it much more loudly now, that it's a tough time to think that you're going to start a Ph.D. and have a job at the end. Um, because there's a demographic cliff. For students, so enrollments are way down at many, many um, universe, universities now. So classes can't be filled. Classes are being cut. 
there's a demographic cliff for faculty because there's a we're a very old, very, very old profession. But many people don't want to retire. A because often they've been robbed and they don't have pensions. It's very rare in the United States even to have pensions anymore. And not everybody's done well. Some systems have done fine. Others have not at all. But the other is people tend to know that if they're, if they retire, their position is not going to be replaced. There is definitely not a one-to-one replacement going on right now. So any person who's going into a program in any field, virtually any field has to, and sciences are just as bad. And sciences, you go into a postdoc. I think the, Average age of somebody leaving a postdoc is early 40s. Well, you shouldn't be out there having to start a new career in your early 40s. That's that's really demoralizing and uh, exploitative. Um, so I would say don't do this unless you're so passionate that you're willing to think that it was a good move on your part, even if you don't have a job at the end that has anything to do with what you're training for, because you cannot assume that you will have a job. The very, very best uh, I, we were all excited last year where there was one great job. I'm going to be careful about what I say here because I don't want to um, uh, reveal anyone's identity unfairly. But there was one great job in my old field of 19th century American literature. And it was actually a former student of mine that got this job. Uh, and we were all shocked because she had been seven years, seven years in adjuncts, teaching in different places around the world on part-time gigs, doing put-together gigs, and she now landed a tenure-track job in, in her field of 19th century American literature. Well, it's encouraging that she got a job, but nobody should have to spend seven years as a wanderer trying to get a job on, and get their first job. I mean, that changes everything about your life, you know, everything else you do in life. Um, so I would be very negative in that sense. And then I would be, here's bad girl part again. I would say, given that the outcome is so uncertain and probably negative, for God's sakes, do what you love. I mean, how stupid to do something practical that's going to yield an impractical result. Do something that you love so that every minute that you have the privilege to be working for your degree you realize is soul nourishing so that if you end up doing a job that has nothing to do with your degree, you got, how lucky were you? You got to spend seven years nourishing your soul. That's not a bad thing. But if you're making compromises and writing a dissertation that you think is stupid and working with people who are brutalizing you um, or that you feel are hurting your soul because you think it's going to yield something practical, that's a devil's bargain and you've lost it. So, you know, that would be the kind of thing, um, the kind of thing. I did not write Revolution in the Word as a dissertation. I had a wonderful, cantankerous dissertation director who said, if you try to write this as a dissertation, we'll we'll destroy it for you. So I wrote, I found um, a writer who I'd really had only read one story by Ambrose Pierce. All of his stories fit in one volume. And I'd read a story, write a page, read a story, write a page. And in six weeks, I wrote a dissertation. And I handed in as a dissertation while I was writing Revolution in the Word, which took me 10 years and meeting the great British theorists and learning different theory that had nothing to do with anybody I was working on in a subordinate position. I'm not saying other people should do that, but it's a good model to think of don't do things that are killing your soul now because you think there's going to be a practical end when you can't count on a practical end. 
Um, you know, so that to me feels imperative. And I know that there's a whole bunch of idealism in that, or maybe it's cynicism. I'm not sure which that is. Um, but it's a, it's a, maybe it's a life lesson. Maybe it's a hard knocks life lesson that you shouldn't be destroying your life now for a promise that nobody ever has really made to you and that nobody can keep later on. Uh, that's just a bad way to live a life. This sounds that like that line from Lacan. I think it's in him or maybe it's in Love Story. I can never differentiate the two. But So it's either Eric Siegel or Jacques Lacan who says, you know, Siegel says love is not ever having to say you're sorry, but Lacan says something like, you know, love is somebody offering you something that you don't want and isn't theirs to give. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I guess one of the things I say to doctoral students or when I was uh, teaching them was you must do the minimum that the state or the university requires. You must satisfy their needs. You must do what the professional international association of peers says. But again, at the minimum and at the maximum, do what you love, what's yes. driving you, what's animating you, because I'll tell you what. The state and the university will change their minds tomorrow about insisting that X, Y, and Z are essential because they don't know what they're doing. And when they don't know what they're doing, they change the necessary outcomes in order to justify their failure. The professional associations are less like that. They actually are in tune with what's going on, but also not completely reliable, especially if you're a subaltern person in terms of your identity or nationality, whatever it may be. But the only thing you can rely on is what drives you. Yes. Yes. I, I love that. I think that's so exactly right. And if if your sensibility is such that those minimum requirements really are hurting you on some profound level, then you really should be thinking about a different profession. Because nobody, because for some, it's like, I'm doing the minimum, I can brush it off, and then I'm going to do what I love. But for some people, those minimum things really are a pain and a and and destructive. And don't do it. It's not worth yeah, it. There exactly. are other ways to live a life. But you, you need to meet those requirements yes. or you won't get ahead. But or you won't get the degree. No. But don't True. believe in them as holy writ because <laughs> they will suddenly turn to ash. Yes. Well, Prof. Davidson, thank you so much. As I said before, I'd like now to turn it over to you, lest there be things we haven't discussed that you'd like to mention, or if there are even things that the bad girl wishes to edit, because I don't edit digitally, but you can orally. Okay, I'm not going to edit anything unless you need to take out the F word for your no, 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 um, no, no, to no. make that. <laughs> um, there was recently, within the last week, an article in the in, and I'm not sure which publication. It was in one of the academic publications. I'm not sure which one it was. Um, if it was Inside Higher Education, Chronicle of Higher Education. That begins by quoting an editor at a major academic press saying that basically there'd been nothing new in the field of history by anybody under the age of 50. I find that so ghastly. I actually said in my tweet back when I read this that that person should be fired. I mean, you, you should not have the power to judge or to pronounce public judgments on everybody under 50 and having nothing to contribute. And what you said, you said such a wise thing about how professions change and fields change and people who are not connected 
um, can change their minds without any real knowledge and often in very detrimental ways. There are also people in positions of real influence and power who refuse to change and who hold on to an idea of what um, they think is powerful and become blind to what is interesting. You made the comment that at MLA there might be somebody, for example, a subalt- from a subaltern culture who's having an enormous impact. And that would be considered silly by the New York Times. You know, like, why do we care what somebody in Fiji feels about Alexander Pope? Or, you know, to make an example that I can't believe would really happen. But um, um, probably something more logical would be if somebody in the colony thinking about Swift and Swift is Swiss colonialism and what that means and what that perpetuates. Um, So gatekeepers exist on every level and sometimes they're our friends and um, how we keep ourselves as beings in the world, actors in the world, thinkers in the world, intellectuals in the world, educators in the world, from being that gatekeeper seems to me a daily, I'm not a religious person, but if I were, I work with Jody Green, who's a, a Buddhist, um, it seems like a ritual thing that you need to renew every day. And you maybe need somebody on Twitter said you really need somebody powerful who can just kick you if you become one of those people who say there's nothing good being produced by anybody under the age of 50. Um, and that to me is, I guess, that motivates me too in writing trade books is I, I, I do like to be the person who kicks, who is well past 50, but who says, no, 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 I'm learning from those people who are coming up who are facing far harsher circumstances than I had to face. You don't have to be 30 to be facing them. The whole world is facing them. But I happen, luckily, to be very lucky to be buffered from some of the things that are affecting so many people. Mm. If I'm not paying attention to the people who are being hurt now, I'm not doing my job. And I need to move aside and I have to do something else. And that seems really, and I know... um, wonderful, wonderful Stuart Hall. I feel like I'm channeling him right now because he felt so passionately about that. Even when he said some of those people under 50 were radically disagreeing with him and making his life miserable, he still felt that if he weren't listening to those people, he was a failure. He was he had failed himself and failed his own ideals. So um, I know that sounds a little pontificating but I really that that to me is the most important thing. I guess that's what I want to end with. What I what I feel is the stamp I want to end with. So thank you so much, Prof. Davidson. It's always wonderful to listen to you. It's always wonderful to learn from you. I've been learning from reading your work, as I said, for over a quarter of a century. <laughs> uh, and vice versa, sir, <laughs> Professor Miller, and vice versa. And it's just just wonderful and generous of you to give so much of your spirit, of your dynamism, of your energy, of your drive, of your criticism and of your hope to our conversation. It's been a great Thank you so much.